well, as long as we're doing a third fucking take of this anyway, I might as well do it the way you like it. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, I noticed that the show account has risen from the dead. Do you think it was your personal intervention with Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter? I would like to think that I have that power. Um, I actually think it's uh, that po- uh, you know this new podcast uh, out of Berkeley, you know, uh, University of California, Berkeley. Um, uh, more of a comment than a question. I think it's their, you know, activism. They were like, "Hey, Twitter, what's up?" And, and like, what moments later, we are we are back on Twitter. So they, they these graduate students, they have uh, profound powers. Yeah. So don't cross them. Yeah, definitely not. Because uh, us, you know, uh, you know, mentioning that we were uh, tenured univers- University of Toronto professors opened zero doors. I mean, a very surprising. It probably, if anything, harmed us. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but I must say, having the podcast back, I feel like I have my wings again. I feel like, you know, I can, uh, I mean, it plays such a minor part of my life, but just having that podcast account, that Twitter account just makes me feel whole. You know, when you say that with such glee, it does make me feel a little bit apprehensive for the next thing that you're going to do. <laughs> That's right. Watch out, uh, Twitter. All right. So enough chit chat. Um, I would like to introduce our guest. We're very excited to have Neil Lewis Jr. joining us today on the show. Neil is an assistant professor of communication and social behavior at Cornell University. And he has graduate faculty appointments in communication and in psychology. He also holds a joint appointment in the Weill Cornell Medical College Division of General Internal Medicine as an assistant professor of communication research in medicine. In addition to his faculty roles, Neil is one of the authors of Science Magazine's Letters to a Young Scientist professional development column, which provides career advice to new scientists. He is also an assistant director at the Psychological Science Accelerator, uh, which we've talked about before on the show. So, Neil, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. So, we'd like to um, start uh, with a bit of personal background. We'd like to do this for... um, but the first personal guests. thing we need to ask is what we're drinking. Oh, fuck me. Uh, I'm, I always forget. All right. This is staying in, though. Okay, so so what are we drinking? The guest typically gets to say first. Uh, so I'm not drinking beer. I'm drinking wine tonight. I'm drinking um, a French red wine, uh, Cote uh, So that's my drink of the evening. Nice. Uh, I'm uh, joining you in uh, protesting the beer this evening. Um, I made myself a basil gin smash, which I'm just going to point out has like four ounces of gin in it. Um, and it does not, (laughs) it doesn't taste that way at all. So this could get, uh, real ugly, real fast. Mickey, what about you? What's a good thing that, that, that Neil will be doing most of the talking because you can just drink away and, uh, no one will be the wiser. That's Um, my plan. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, unlike you two gentlemen, I mean, I'm not sure what it's like in Ithaca, Neil, but it's super hot uh, in Toronto. The entire summer has been, you know, just like an oven. And a cold beer on a, on a hot summer night uh, you know, does me good. So I've got um, something from a brewery called Hops and Rubbers. 
Uh, it's a Sucker Punch IPA. So this is, uh, I only started seeing this somewhat recently. These are like sour and tart IPAs. So they're not sour beers per se. They're actually IPAs, but they have, I'm not sure exactly how, uh, what brings up the sourness, but they are very, very uh, sour. Um, 6.5%. So um, I won't be quite as smashed as you, uh, UL, but uh, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be feeling good, I think. You're doing your part. Yes. Okay. Well, cheers, cheers, everybody. Cheers. Okay. So Mickey, you want to do the first question? I do. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the show, uh, Neil. And uh, we're going to talk about all different kinds of things, your research, um, your column, um, lots of things. But we have to start with uh, just getting a bit personal. And if you don't mind, um, uh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about your personal background. Um, so I know, for example, that you're originally from Jamaica and you immigrated to the U.S. as a young child. So can you tell us about that? Like, how old were you? What was life like before you moved? Yeah, so um, I was born in Jamaica, uh, lived there um, for first uh, six years of my life. Um, so I moved around a bit. Um, left there and actually went to Germany first before uh, coming to the U.S. Um, from a military family. Uh, so went to Germany, um, lived there till I was nine, and then I came to the U.S., um, and then grew up in central Florida, um, until college, um, then came to Cornell, um, did my undergrad here, uh, went to Michigan, uh, did, did my PhD in social psychology and then came back to Cornell. Well, as you know, I think we've communicated over Twitter. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jamaica as a tourist and as a visitor. Um, so I was, uh, I, I felt a special kinship with you when I found out you were from Jamaica. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, um. But uh, anyway, so so uh, thanks for sharing that, and uh, it's it, good to know. Um, but now uh, maybe we can get into more, like, uh, still a background question, but uh, more of a question about your academic background. So you said you went to Cornell for undergrad, um, but, you know, I'm not sure what you studied, and you eventually went to Michigan uh, to study uh, psychology uh, in graduate school. So what led to that? What led to you, to, you know, becoming uh, a, psycho a psychologist working in a department of communications at Cornell? Yeah, so my background into this field, I feel like I sort of stumbled into this um, role via sort of process of elimination. So um, in undergrad, um, I studied economics um, and psychology um, and did research in sociology. Um, so that was sort of uh, the background before Michigan. But um, originally I went to college um, wanting to become a lawyer. Um, that seemed like a practical thing to do. Um, but then um, one of the things that Cornell allows undergrads to do is um, take a few classes in the law school um, just to sort of see what it's like. Um, and I did that. Um, and I found my law class really interesting, but it also made me realize I didn't actually want to become a lawyer. Um, so that was a good learning experience. Um, and then I sort of explored some business stuff for a bit and Again, interesting, but wasn't really excited about it. So I decided to give research a try. Um, I joined a lab, um, a sociology lab, and I ended up really loving research there. Um, and, you know, my advisor was like, you seem to really enjoy this and you're really good at it. So you can, you should consider like research as a possible career path. Um, and so I did that um, and then went off to graduate school, studied social psychology. Um, and then um, in the end, um, I think I've talked about this a bit on Twitter too. You know, a lot of my work was on um, interventions um, around um, sort of equity issues and um, was really trying to find a place that I could do that kind of work. Um, so I applied 
um, somewhat broadly to some psych departments, but as well as a few other disciplines uh, where people did a lot of intervention work, uh, communication being one of them. Um, and this was a really good fit for me. And so that's why I um, ended up coming back here in the comm department. So I think it's interesting that you've actually, you know, bounced around quite a bit between fields, right? So as a sociology, uh, you know, undergraduate, it's not obvious that you would then go to a social psych program. And then you went to what I consider to be like the most social psych program in the U.S., right? And then you end up in not a social psych uh, uh, department. So has there been any like downside to that or any weirdness about like bouncing around between fields? Do you think it's all to the good and that it's like broadened your perspective? How has that worked for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, looking back now, I think, it was all for the good um, and that it has broadened my perspectives in ways that um, helps me do my work um, in a better way. Um, but, you know, along the way, there's always been lots of uncertainty um, about fit and the like as a result. So, um, you know, the point about being in a sociology lab as an undergrad than going to a psychology um, PhD program, um, I actually applied 50-50 between psychology and sociology uh, PhD programs, um, came down to um, a psych versus a social program, and it was a matter of which one felt better and there was a better fit. Um, so the social program I was going to go to, um, or I was considering, when I went for the visit, one of the people I was really interested in told me that she was planning to retire in a few years. Uh, and so I was like, well, there was only one person left there that I really wanted to work with. That felt really risky, whereas there were lots of people at Michigan that I wanted to work with. And so that felt like a pretty safe bet. And so that's why I became a psychologist and not a sociologist uh, in the end. It's kind of amazing how these, you know, these small little uh, events, you know, dramatically impact our lives, right? These small little things yeah. that are out of con our control. All of a sudden, your career trajectory is radically different. Um, so, uh, you know, I, you all and I are both, uh, we don't, Bobby, I don't think either one of us has, has conducted any research on interventions, um, or research in the field. I, I think for both of us, the, the process of, of having these bi-weekly discussions you know, on the podcast, we've grown to appreciate the need for this kind of work more and more, especially as we kind of see failings in in, in basic research um, and also just kind of asking what, what the hell are we doing here? So, so I think we see, you know, uh, a real need for, 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 for us to, to apply more of, you know, more of our work. Um, but at the same time, it seems like, especially now, um, there has been a rush uh, to kind of get into applied work, uh, yep. maybe even intervention work. And I'm speaking specifically in the in the COVID era, um, where like you know it seems like years ago, but it's really what only four or five months ago when we first started <laughs> lockdown, and all of a sudden everybody was doing research on COVID, um, and you pushed back, um, you know, suggesting that uh, this might not be a wise idea. Uh, so you co-authored a paper um, suggesting that, you know, psychology might not be crisis ready. Uh, but you also wrote a blog post. I think it was a, a guest blog on Sanjay Srivastava's uh, blog, which I found very moving and very persuasive. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of, uh, you know, lay out the argument for us, uh, kind of what was going on then and why you, why you did what you did. Yeah, so it was all um, really strange to live it all as it unfolded and um, much of it felt really uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, everyone got 
um, excited about doing COVID research. Um, I think part of it is this sort of existential questioning of um, does our work meaning mean anything um, and what can we contribute um, during this time now? So there's lots of rush to say, well, I've been studying these theories for years. Like it must be useful somehow to address this pandemic response. And just um, there was this period where every morning, you know, I'd look at Twitter and there's just like five, five or more new preprints on uh, how this theory is going to um, address the pandemic response. Um, and, you know, initially I was like, I don't really know about that, but fine, you do you. Uh, but then it just more and more kept happening. And then um, the hype around them just kept growing, right? That um, just the, the tweet threads just kept getting more and more extreme. And I'm like, guys, this is, we can't do this. Uh, we don't actually know that. Um, and, you know, SciArchive is not just a space uh, so that preprint blog, I assume your listeners uh, know that, the preprint server. Um, SciArchive is not just a space for us to communicate with each other. Lots of journalists follow that. Um, and as we're watching um, the news stories, we just kept seeing like these preprints being talked about as news before anyone has vetted them. And it just, it felt like, everything was getting out of control um, and this could potentially do some harm. And so that's why I was like, we need to actually slow down and figure out what's actually going to be um, effective um, versus ineffective. Um, and then we can communicate that. But just adding more and more noise um, is not particularly helpful. So, um, you know, I was thinking about this, it was starting to bother me. Um, I wrote one uh, initial like Twitter thread about it. Um, then um, I think Hans and um, Andy uh, were the two co-authors that um, helped sort of lead that uh, response paper. Um, you know, messaged me and was like, "Yeah, this has been bothering us too, and like we've been thinking about whether we should write a response." And so we ended up doing that um, to sort of say, "You know, slow down. Let's figure out." What is the state of evidence and can we use it? And then that, of course, got some pushback uh, from people who are like, no, my work is ready and people should be using it. <laughs> um, and so that's why I decided to um, write the blog post to sort of respond to some of those, in some ways, defensive uh, reactions to our piece. And the broader argument is, yeah, I think there's a lot of research in psychology and the other uh, social sciences that are certainly relevant in some way uh, to the pandemic response, and we should be thinking about that. Um, but there's a huge space between something being relevant in the in an abstract sense um, and being ready for implementation at scale, which is sort of, we were just jumping over all of those steps, I felt like, in the online discussions of, I have this theory and like, here, go use it now um, in large-scale messages. You need to know something about uh, the context um, that you're intervening in. What are the politics at play there? What are the histories of the um, people there? What are the differences between the people in your study um, and the people um, in these communities that uh, would be receiving these interventions? I mean, we've talked a lot about the weird people problem in the social sciences and other um, methodological issues in the field. Like Those things matter. They're not just things to talk about in an abstract sense among ourselves in the field when you're translating work, those details matter. And so um, the broader point of 
the blog post um, and that paper was to say, let's slow down and figure it out um, and then uh, move forward. And I think the parallel way to think about this um, is think about what the vaccine makers um, said early on, right? So uh, there's lots of pressures to come up with a vaccine for COVID. What did they say? They said, we need at least 18 months. We don't know the answer right now. We're going to take our time and we're going to figure out what it takes to come up with a good vaccine um, so that when we put it out there, we'll know it works. That kind of approach, I think, is something that we can all learn from, that we should really take our time, figure out what's going to be effective and then implement uh, it's a couple of interesting things there. First of all, you know, Russia already has the vaccine, right? So they've shown that six months is enough, right? <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding. Um, but one thing that struck me is like, even um, you're talking about even research that's like that, that that's good, that's trustworthy, that's replicable, right? And then you're saying, look, there's massive translation issues, but like. What the bread and butter of our <laughs> podcast here is this replication crisis, right? And like, are we so we, we we can't even replicate our damn stuff in in like essentially the same samples more or less? And now you want to go out to the world and 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 say we can do this and that? It just you know it, it seems like we're we're suffering from hubris. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the other thing that um, you know, yeah, the assumption of um, moving to the translation phase first assumes that you can replicate the basic effects. Um, and if you're not even there, then I, that's a different conversation. So there's a, a ton in what you said that, that I want to follow up on. But one thing that struck me is that you mentioned early on the role that preprints played here. Um, and generally, the people who are pro-open science are you know, all four preprints, the idea being that you get your ideas out there more quickly, you can get feedback pre-publication. Maybe there's a big mistake in the paper that somebody might catch, you know, before you even submit it. Um, so there's been a lot of enthusiasm, I would say, about about that idea. And SciArchive, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar, is in psychology, the biggest preprint server. Um, but then they do have this problem that you point out, which is, when the media are paying attention to the stuff you're doing, they will go and write up your preprint. And even if they say this hasn't been peer reviewed yet, it's sort of an addendum to the long story that, you know, talks about your findings or whatever. And so I wonder, what are your thoughts on that? Is is there any way to keep the good while mitigating those kind of negative consequences? Or should we be thinking about whether um, we should be doing preprints at all for things that are you know, kind of hot right now that like reporters might want to write about? Yeah, I mean, this is something I've been struggling with um, certainly since the pandemic, but I also thought a bit about before. Um, there have been a few other papers um, in the past where posted the preprint, um, there are big news stories about them. Then after the peer review process, um, conclusions changed somewhat. And of course, um, I understand why in the journalism world, it's sort of not... Um, sexy to follow up uh, and say, oh, actually, that story that I wrote about in the past, uh, turns out it's a little bit different now. Like, that doesn't, that correction um, is not incentivized um, there in the same way that, frankly, it's not incentivized for us, which I'm sure is a topic you've talked about before. So, um, you know, my personal uh, approach with the preprint servers is I actually use them more as postprint servers, uh, right? That 
um, I want some vetting before I put it out there um, because um, I just know that it's not a place that it's just scientists communicating anymore, that um, I've seen enough articles written now. Um, and if you look at actually um, SciArchive and um, following of it, um, you see that uh, journalists are, are following it. So if you know that it's not just scientists that are communicating there, other people are watching too, then you have to think about um, what might other people take away from this. Um, and so in terms of hot topics like COVID or whatever the next big thing is, um, I think we have to be a bit more careful. And um, I know it's sort of somewhat anti-open science to say this, but uh, maybe there should be um, some more closed vetting um, early on before um, you put something on a preprint server, particularly something that's quite socially sensitive. Um, I, I'm not, it's something I'm still working through in my own mind. Um, I mean, I, I mean that the, the pushback, I'm, I'm hearing Samin Vizier in my ear. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think yeah. her, what she might say is something like, um, you know, there's not really good quality control with peer review as well. And there can be lots of crappy papers. And we know there are lots of crappy papers that make it out and are published. Yep. Um, and journalists are going to cite those as well. Um, so, so what do you think of that comment? Yeah, I mean, that's fair. There's certainly a lot that, um, a lot of crap that gets through peer review as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is why I want to be sort of cautious. I don't want to blame the preprint servers or the preprint process as like the main issue. Um, but it's certainly faster to get, um, things out there, um, by just, I got up, well, now I'm being petty, but I got up this morning, I wrote a paper um, about how my uh, theory can address the pandemic response. And I threw it up on uh, say archive by the end of the day that um, at least the journal, you take some time to have a few people reflect on it um, first. They might not catch everything, um, but I think some feedback um, is helpful. Um, so Neil, first of all, we encourage pettiness. That's <laughs> <laughs> our bread and butter. And finally, I, I want to say, I think, Samin, if this is really her argument, th that strikes me as a bit nuts. Like, you know, seatbelts don't always work. Sometimes they might even do harm. But on average, they confer some benefit, right? And so you wouldn't say, oh, the seatbelt fails sometimes, therefore let's do away with them. And I think if you're going to say, okay, if it's a choice between some vetting and no vetting, then I would like some vetting. I think the problem is that when something is peer reviewed, then lay people think of it as like infallible somehow, right? Like, oh, it's peer reviewed, so it must be true. And that's obviously a mistake, right? But to say that it isn't better to get some feedback from, you know, experts in your area before you put something out there, especially on a controversial topic, that seems like all else equal, how could you not want to do that? Yeah, I mean, I agree there. I think, you know, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a matter of degree. Like some vetting is better than no vetting. Uh, both, well, uh, mistakes happen for both of them, but some quality control is better than none. Yeah. And, you know, if people talk about failures of peer review, and I'm sure that happens, stuff gets published, that's bad, etc. But like my personal experience is generally my papers get better. 
after the review process. And that's maybe like not a popular thing to say um, because it's like, oh, reviewers review uh, like ruin papers or, or what have you. But usually in my case, like they uh, push me to make arguments stronger. Uh, They point out other theory that's relevant. Uh, They suggest analyses that are helpful. So I think that there's a, possibility of throwing out the baby with a bathwater here and saying like oh there's there's no signal at all that you get from peer review i just don't think that's right yeah i mean i have a similar perspective on peer review it's not a popular thing to say on twitter but um even terrible reviews are revealing of something um at at the very least um it alerts me to the gap between what i'm trying to say and what people are perceiving um, and I get a chance to fix that. Um, and so um, there's certainly reviews that piss me off, um, but they still end up being useful in some way. So uh, one thing that jumped out at me uh, about the blog post in particular is that you talk about opportunity cost, um, which is something that you know psychologists, particularly when they're proposing interventions, don't often seem to consider, right? And so the idea is, if we spend money on the psychological intervention, that's money that we can't then spend on something else. And particularly in a pandemic, uh, we have these competing priorities, right? So um, we might think of uh, buying masks, developing vaccines, paying people unemployment benefits, right? All of these things are sort of vying for uh, scarce resources. And if you're going to make an argument that like, oh, the government should spend money to do my intervention, then you have to make an argument that your intervention is actually going to be a better way to spend that money than all these other competing priorities. So I think that's totally true. Um, One thing that struck me is that that's probably true, not just in a pandemic. So for example, like in education, right? There's scarce money. There's lots of things you could spend that money on. Um, And so a uh, psychological intervention necessarily, if you're going to spend money implementing it, takes money away from these other things that you could be doing. So how broadly do you think actually that this critique applies to psychology interventions? Um, I would say it, I think it applies not just to um, psychology interventions, um, but it is something we should be we should always be thinking about. Um, there are always opportunity costs. Um, and so, um, you know, I was thinking about the pandemic case, obviously, but many of the, um, the way that at least I was thinking about applying many of these um, interventions and, you know, these tweet threads and preprints about use my theory um, was essentially they'd be translated into messaging um, kinds of interventions. Um, and if you're going to do a messaging intervention that you're going to disseminate at some scale, um, that usually means you need to buy some time in a media market. Um, let's say, um, if you're, let's say you're going to run TV ads using one kind of framing of a message. Um, TV ads are expensive, um, and depending on which media market you're in, you can be spending a lot of money. Um, and so then you have to think about things like, well, how would that translate um, into metrics that matter uh, for the pandemic outcome. Um, You know, what's the, um, so if you run your ads, let's say in Manhattan, um, and that the media market that covers Manhattan, how many more people are gonna do the thing that you want them to do? Um, Like that's something you have to um, come up with some estimate of. Um, And is that money worth it compared to 
something else that would reduce um, infection rates um, or um, mortality. Um, we have to think about those things. And beyond the pandemic, I think you're absolutely right. The place that I really started thinking about this was education interventions. Um, so I mentioned the blog post, the blog posts, this conversation I had uh, with an economist who, um, first of all, it's like rare, rare to get an economist that excited about psychology um, and, and about psychological interventions, but he was really excited um, about a number of these um, brief psychological interventions um, that he had read about and he um, works in the education intervention space. It's like, so if I had to pick one of them, like, first of all, like, which one did you choose? And um, how should I think about um, spending money on that versus like free lunch, uh, which, you know, feeding kids turns out to help a lot uh, with learning. Um, and I didn't know how to answer that question, right? Um, when I thought about sort of effect sizes of um, these interventions um, and translating that at scale, like how much money should we be spending on this? I don't know. I still don't know. Um, but it's a question that we need to ask. I mean, that, that's a that's such a stark contrast, right? So um, I can give you, uh, to pick on Carol Dweck, because we like to do that, um, you know, I can give you an intervention uh, that will tell you that intelligence is malleable and changeable um, or not uh, versus I can give you breakfast, snack, lunch. Uh, what's going to have a bigger impact on learning outcomes or the ability to focus or concentrate or be content in, in school? I mean, it's clear that, you know, if you're hungry and you get food, that's going to be way more important than, you know, some tweaky little thing that's just about how you can... How you well, can no, okay, okay. Wait, now I have to step in to defend Carol. I think now you're begging the question, right? Like, we don't know, yeah. right? It could be that this psychological intervention is actually a great value for the money, right? Yeah, so you have to um, you have to ask the question, um, and you also have to think about the relative cost of those things. So um, I think um, also to uh, defend Carol a little bit for a moment, uh, the brief psychological intervention probably doesn't cost as much as the free lunch program, um, but you do have to ask. Well, what does it take to um, implement that intervention with fidelity? So like, how much time do you have to spend training teachers to do this? Um, if you have to do lots of uh, professional development with teachers, then actually the costs add up a lot. Um, if it's just, you know, send these kids a video to watch or something, then maybe um, it's functionally free. But either way, we have to ask these questions and figure out um, what are the relative costs and the relative benefits and then make our decisions um, in that way. Um, I think it also, you know, tying this back to theory, because I think this is some of the pushback at least I get, um, is that, oh, well, these are like not psychological questions. Um, these are sort of application policy questions. It doesn't, um, that's somebody else's problem to figure out. Um, but I think it also can teach us a lot about, um, our theories and how much, um, does the sort of how strong does the phenomenon need to be, for instance, um, to get the effect. And, um, there's a Twitter conversation about this earlier, um, thinking about things of like implementation fidelity, right? So if you need the teachers to be just as good as the researchers, um, that might take a lot of training, a lot of money, 
um, and then now it becomes really expensive. If the teachers only need to be like half as good uh, as the researchers, then maybe um, that's doable. But if the teachers are only half as good as the researchers, what does that mean for like whether or not your intervention works? Um, like these are all kinds of questions that I think we um, need to be asking, and it teaches us a lot about our theories as well as um, the applications of them. Yeah, I think that the idea of opportunity cost and and thinking about you know those sorts of trade offs is really powerful, and it strikes me that opportunity costs they needn't be only financial. So there could be opportunity costs in attention, for example. So let's say a firm is really motivated to, quote unquote, do something about uh, discrimination. And they're like, we're going to do this anti-bias training. And, you know, you <laughs> might say, well, what's the harm? It's, you know, like it's at worst, it's not going to do anything. But I think part of the harm might be now they feel like they've done something. Um, they might feel like they've done something. Um, and... If they see no change, um, the next time uh, the firm comes along or someone else comes along and says, hey, we have this other new thing that you should try, um, then what quickly happens is, oh, you're the person that comes along with a fad every uh, few years. And it's like, why should I listen to you now? The last few fads you came along with, they didn't do anything. Um, I'm not going to listen to I'm not going to uh, waste my time. Um, and so David Yeager actually wrote a nice blog post about this um, that I like about the sort of hype cycle in education, that this is actually a response now from teachers when researchers come along with the next intervention. It's like, oh yeah, we've been down this road before. I'll smile and nod during the professional development session and then I'll go back and um, do my thing because this is just the latest fad that you researchers have come up with. There's no need to listen to you. The last time I listened to you, nothing happened. Um, I find it interesting that... Um some of the defenses of psychology getting into inter into interventions is uh, at worst, you know, nothing will happen. You know, there's no harm. Um, but that seems really short-sighted. Uh, so, you well, you 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 know, your last example was let's say a bias training example. Um, there is research, including stuff that you know I, I I've done with a with a former postdoc, suggesting that some forms of interventions could lead to the exact opposite of what you want. It could actually lead to a heightening of, in this case, you know, bias. Um, and I imagine um, there could be potentially harm done as well with psychological interventions, in, you know, in terms of COVID interventions that are not just like, at worst, it does nothing. It, it possibly could also lead to harm and not just solely because they could be doing other things that are more effective. Um, we just We just don't know. Yeah, I know we've talked about this before, right? But like, it's almost this like implicit concession that like, well, these things probably aren't going to do that much, you know? Like, you would never think of like just giving people like a medication and being like, well, you know, what's the harm, right? Because you realize that these are powerful substances that have big effects, right? And if we truly believe that our psychological interventions can have big effects, then we have to at least entertain the possibility that they might have big negative effects, that, that the thing that worked one way in the lab actually has the opposite effect in the field. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I'm um, increasingly interested in as sort of a meta-scientific question, as why is it that um, psychologists believe that our actions can only do good um, and do no harm, um, and when it does good, it will have like a, po a large positive impact. Um, and those are the only options, like 
it'll do a lot of good or it'll do nothing, but there's no negative thing. Like why, like, why do we believe that? I, I just, I, I'm really fascinated by that question lately. I suspect it's because our <laughs> intentions are good, right? So we believe that they're going to work we th- and we're well-intentioned people. And therefore at worst, it just won't be that great. <laughs> but we also are the people that uh, study these gaps between intentions and impact. So um, it's like we ignore our own research uh, when it's not convenient. <laughs> Motivated reasoning gets you <laughs> every thing, time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wonder if uh, we should maybe take a, a quick break, Yoel, and um, you know fill up our beverages. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, I need to make myself another one of these drinks. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So our show account has been restored to life. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, we're at Four Beers Pod on Twitter. You can at mention us. You can DM us. If you're more an email sort of person, uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com is the show email address that goes to me and to Mickey. And finally, our website, fourbeers.com, has all of our episodes, show notes, and a contact form so you can drop us a line there as well. Finally, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people discover the show. Mickey, have I left anything out? I think we have to plug Olga Pope uh, from Linehouse London. So Olga uh, designed our new logo, our new... Now we, I'm so, ha- so happy and proud of our um, Twitter uh, avatar, which I just love. Um, 2P4B, I love that. Um, and uh, she did it for us like out of the goodness of her heart. And I think she did an awesome job. So, you know, uh, follow her on Twitter. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's at Olga Can't Write. Um, or check out her, check out her company's website, Linehouse London. If you need any, uh, any kind of branding of any kind, she's, she's the person for you. She's awesome. Yeah. I love the 2P4B acronym because I, I feel like that just sort of emerged organically from Twitter. And it's, you know, we came up with a stupid fucking show name that's like way too long (laughs) and the people like fixed it for us. So thank you, uh, people on Twitter who came up with that. We could have been, we could have been, was it, two psychologists, six beers. That was our original. Uh, that's, that's right. <laughs> oh, we, <God. laughs> we don't want to endorse the full on, you know, problematic drinking, we decided. <laughs> We're all about restraint here. That's right. B for B. Okay. Speaking of Mickey, what are you drinking? So I'm going to, about to crack open um, a something called Haze, Haze Mama. 
It's a New England IPA, which is all the rage uh, this season. This is by Great Lakes uh, Brewery. I've had this a couple of times, uh, although I think uh, I'm not sure I've ever had it on the show. And Jesus, it's 7%, so um, I'm going to feel it tomorrow for sure. We all appreciate what you're doing for us, Mickey. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm like Jesus, you will. You know, I'm like, you know, taking on the world's pain here for, for you. You are. You are. That's right. Um, you're, you know, a Middle Eastern Jew who's taking on the world's pain. Um, Neil, what, do you, what about you? Are you still on the wine? I'm still on the wine. Awesome. And I have made myself another one of these uh, basil gin smashes. Um, I, I had to sort of take down the gin a little bit or else it's going to be real ugly, but uh, it's still plenty strong. Mickey, do you want to take the first question? Yeah, yeah, I would. Although I want to take a sip of my beer first, if I might. You may. may. <laughs> While he does that, I will ask a question that you can cut out later. Do uh, breweries now just send you beer to, to have on the show? Oh, my Is God. That, like... <laughs> that would be a dream come true, Neil. I wish. I know. It, despite us essentially giving free advertisement to almost every single local brewery, um, no breweries actually give us anything. It's it's the kind and poor graduate students who typically send us beer. <laughs> yeah, come to think of it, why aren't they sending us beer, those fuckers? I know. I think we have to. I think we might have to, like you know, actually solicit from them. Hey, by the way, I'll mention your beer on air. Um, that's not an, I wonder how often they get that. Yeah, I totally have a podcast, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um. Okay, so uh, just to change things up a little bit, um, and I ask this because I am ignorant uh, about it, but I saw very briefly, I, I, you know, I've really kind of cut down my Twitter consumption uh, a lot uh, in the past few months, but I did see... It's probably good for your health. Yeah, it's def- definitely very, very good for my health. Um, you seem to, to, to interact with it in, in, in a healthy way. Um, but I, I was lucky enough to see that uh, you have a new gig at uh, 538. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I guess you'll be a a, a columnist or... uh, So what are you doing there? I'm going to periodically write about social and behavioral science. Um, Yeah, so um, interestingly, image related to the blog posts that we've been discussing in in a bit of a way. Um, So, um, yeah, one of the editors there, I guess, had been following for um, a little while. And I don't know, I write a lot of threads on Twitter. Um, I feel like one of the roles I um, sometimes play there is to do the cold take rather than the hot take. Um, And we'll write threads um, that sort of try to contextualize some of the um, hot topics that people are discussing. Um, And between that and the blog posts, um, which ended up being um, read pretty um, widely, um, I think that sort of sparked some interest from um, some outlets for like, you're someone who can help us like contextualize some issues um, that we want to sort of have more coverage on. And um, I had been thinking about doing more public writing anyway. It's something I had planned to do sort of later in my career. Um, but, you know, in the wake of the pandemic um, and rethinking like, what are we doing anyway? And like, does just publishing academic journal articles, is that enough? Um, I've been thinking about these questions. Um, and so um, they reached out and said they're sort of growing their pool of academic contributors um, and asked if I was interested in writing uh, for them. 
Um, and so I had a conversation with them about what that would look like um, and sort of, you know, explained I, I want to have the space to do the kind of deep dive analyses. Um, that's like what they're all about. Uh, they're fine with uh, the nuance. They embrace the nuance. And so it seemed like a really good uh, fit rather than a place that um, is just like, you know, we need quick hot takes. Um, go, go, go. I didn't want to do that kind of thing. So it was a really good fit between like what they wanted and um, the kind of thing I was thinking about um, potentially doing anyway. So, um, cool. so I'll yeah, periodically write for them. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's, you know, quite a, a feather in your cap. Um, and are you going to be like just bad mouthing psychology? Is that going to be just going to do that? Or <laughs> I'm not going to be bad mouthing psychology. I'm going to be contextualizing how we should think about using psychology in the world. Uh, sometimes that's, this is great and we should do this. And sometimes that's, let's slow down and figure out whether or not um, we can actually apply this. Well, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Can we take a, a quick detour here? Because I was just thinking about, you know, you guys had that brief back and forth about, about Twitter. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think like a lot of us, you might have sort of a love hate relationship with it. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, it strikes me like just as you were talking, like you mentioned a few things that happened, like because of Twitter, um, this, uh, paper about, uh, interventions, right? Like the, the other two lead authors reached out to you, I guess, because they saw your Twitter presence, 538, at least in part, uh, became aware of you because you were writing this stuff on Twitter that was widely retweeted. And at the same time, you know, anybody who's on Twitter knows this feeling of like constantly having to worry about how people are going to take this, you know, constantly like sort of looking over your shoulder being like, is this going to piss people off? And, and then also just the, the fact that it like by design is an outrage magnifier and the experience of like wading into it can be intensely unpleasant. So I'm curious how you just personally balance those kind of pros and cons. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so this, I think of the, like, um, I don't know what to call it, but, um, the concern, I guess, about wading into like the outrage machine and like, how might things be perceived is actually a good thing um, that it's useful to stop and think about how what you might say might be perceived. Um, and I think part of where like a lot of people get themselves into trouble is not taking that moment to think about that before hitting the tweet button. Uh, like in, in some ways, sometimes I wish um, Twitter had sort of, there's that button on Manuscript Central that before you submit, it's like, are you sure uh, you want to submit? Like, uh, you know, it might be nice sometimes uh, if I've been thinking about that as like a Twitter intervention. So if anyone from Twitter is listening, like, uh, are you sure you want to tweet this? Right. Uh, it looks like you've written a very <laughs> angry 20 tweet thread. Do you really want to tweet that? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I do. um think um about like what i'm about to say before i say it and particularly like the threads um i actually write them out in microsoft word first and i sit on it for a while and i think about like is this something i want to say or not um like what other evidence might i want to link to um this if i'm going to make this argument uh, because i do think about it um similarly to how i think about papers right like i'm communicating with not only um, this broader audience of uh, people that are following on Twitter, but like also my peers, right? Um, and if I'm going to be 
particularly making scientific um, arguments or telling people that here's a way that I want you to think about the science and like I should back that up as much as I can. Um, and so um, I think that's part of what's been effective and why like despite Twitter being an outrage machine and all of those negative things that um, some good, a lot of good for me at least um, has come from it. Um, yeah, that's an interesting take and and not one that we hear that often. I, I do feel like well, what you're saying is obviously right and smart. The fact that so many smart people don't seem to be able to take that advice, then maybe you have to ask, like, uh, is this a function more of the platform or the technology, right? That it kind of encourages our worst behavior. And it seems to be very hard to do this in a thoughtful way. Like, I see a lot of people who I think of as smart and thoughtful saying stuff on Twitter where I'm like, really? But you know what? You know, I, I'm just... Uh... I mean, we're looking at a copy edits of a paper that's going to be published shortly. Um, you know, the correlation between intelligence and self-regulation capability <laughs> is zero or even negative. Um, so, you know, those are independent things, being smart, you know, uh, and being, you know, uh, uh, thoughtful and, and not impulsive are independent. Um, so, you know, it's hilarious, Neil, the, the process you described is probably the polar opposite of my process, which is why I, I, I get in so much trouble. Um, I think like the, the, the one time I got the most in trouble, it doesn't matter about what, but um, I was literally in a moving van in between, I got a traffic light <laughs> tweeting and I'm like, holy shit, I just got a major hot water here. <laughs> well, so this is like part of, so um, first of all, I'm excited to read that paper. Um, sounds really interesting. Uh, the second piece on the platform um, side is there is this um, sense on Twitter that, um, you have to keep up with the, the moment, right? That if you don't tweet that thought right now, like you're going to be behind in the conversation. Um, and I guess like part of it for me is um, trying to figure out when it's essential to like um, inject my voice into that conversation right now versus um, waiting until I actually have the time uh, to say something that is useful. So, and like one example of this, um, during one of the many debates about the GRE and standardized tests that happened on Twitter every few months. Um, it was one of those things that like, yeah, people were tweeting, 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 and I was like frustrated, 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 but um, it was a really busy week. Um, and I just, I didn't have time to say anything. Like, like I had something I wanted to say, but I'm like, I can't just like inject uh, my thought right now because I need to, take the time to contextualize it. And so I just waited. Um, and I'm like, I'm going to keep following this. And um, I looked at my calendar and I saw that I had a block like Friday morning because the other thing with these threads is like, I know the things that are going to like evoke um, a lot of conversations and the, then you have to like have the time to engage with people. So I'm like, I have this block Friday morning. Like if people are still talking about this Friday morning, then I'll say something. Um, and so I waited and the conversation was still going. And then I said like, um, what I had to say. Um, and that thread is still, I think, one of my most like engaged with thread that people are still still periodically bring back up. Um, and so there is this tension between I have to say something now versus actually let me wait until I have the time um, and uh, say something sort of more thoughtful. And it's hard sometimes. Like uh, there are many times when I'm like, this is a stupid thing to say. Like I want to respond right now, but I know if I just say the first thing on my mind, it's going to get me into trouble. And then it's actually going to 
require even more time to clean up the mess later. So I'm just gonna like turn off the app, like mute the notifications and just um, step away from it. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I think that's totally right. That it gives you this feeling of immediacy, which creates this urgency to respond right away. Maybe not in the most thoughtful way. Um, and and particularly when you see other people with really extreme opinions, you're like, well, I got to say something right away, or else <laughs> everybody's gonna, you know, read this dude's terrible take. And I, I actually, I wonder, like, that's a really nice intervention that that people can apply pretty easily themselves, right? Just step away for forty eight hours. If it's really that important, it'll still be relevant in 48 hours, and then you can write something more considered. And if not, if it's blown over by then, well, then, you know, you've um, saved yourself some time and mental energy. Yeah, I mean, it it, it, it works sometimes, and other times, uh, not so much. I mean, they're particularly these days with the um, how fast the you know, political news cycle, anyway, is moving. Uh, if you really have a thought about, like, the thing Donald Trump says today. Um, in 48 hours, it probably will not be relevant because... Donald Trump will have said 10 other things. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're trade-offs. But um, I don't feel the need to respond to everything he says. And so um, I find waiting and missing most of it. Listen, I could talk about Twitter all day long. And you, you guys are being way too positive for me. But uh, but I, let's move on to some, some other uh, maybe wittier topics. Um, so I think... I think, Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, um, one of the first times we interacted was uh, with our shared interest in stereotype threat, I think. Um, and I know you're involved in at least two projects on stereotype threat. Yep. Um, so I just think of context where listeners don't know what stereotype threat is. Stereotype threat is this uh, situational predicament one can find oneself in uh, when one is a target of a negative stereotype and, and one's actions in that moment could be judged, you know, uh, through the lens of that stereotype. And that can make people um, anxious and apprehensive and actually paradoxically confirm the stereotype, let's say, in academic settings. So a very, you know, prominent example would be, you know, women are stereotyped as being less capable in math and science than um, than men, uh, they're stereotyped as being uh, that way. And then when they're in, let's say, in a science class or engineering class, and they're aware that their peers are looking at them, they might freeze up and actually, you know, do more poorly on a test or being when they're called up to the to the blackboard, uh, what have you. Um, so, anyways, you're involved in the in two of these projects, and I I am so like excited about both of them because they're so cool. Um, one is a a very unique meta-analysis that's looking at the effect over time. And then the second one is probably the most ambitious registered report I've, you know, ever read about. Uh, and I, I know I'm like, I know I'm, I'm kissing your ass here, but I really <laughs> love it. It's so good. Um, so first, can you just tell us about both those projects? And please tell us you have some results you can share with us. I don't have results, so sorry to burst that bubble. But I will tell you about the process of both of these and why um, um, I and uh, various collaborators um, got involved with them. So um, personally, stereotype threat um, is one of those theories that um, really got me interested in social psychology. Um, like um, I, I've said this elsewhere, but education disparities was like, the social issue that I was like most passionate about, wanted to study, like 
um, trying to figure out sort of interventions to address um, racial and economic disparities in educational outcomes. Like that was the thing that I went to graduate school uh, to study. Um, and stereotype threat is like one of the biggest theories um, from social psychology anyway, in that space. Um, so um, that theory and then sort of various brief psychological interventions that we've talked about um, earlier in the show um, got me really interested in the field. I was like really um, amazed by how you could do this little thing and like really change um, outcomes um, for students. Um, and that's um, what got me so excited about uh, moving to the field and studying social psychology. But then um, there's a replication crisis uh, and there's all this discussion about what we know and what we don't know. And your post, Mickey, actually, Reckoning with the Past, uh, when I read that one um, about, you know, you had edited an entire book on stereotype threat, written an amicus brief um, to the Supreme Court about it, and now you're not so sure. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, like, how, that's a, so for context, one of the labs I grew up in um, in graduate school was an attitude change lab. That is a huge change in attitude to go from, I'm willing to say to the Supreme Court, like, you should act on this evidence too. And that's a short anymore. Um, and so that was really uh, jarring for me and made me really take a step back and try to figure out, like, what is going on here? And so that's um, really what drove both of these projects, right? Um, one thing, so the time one, um, I'd written a review piece um, in grad school, and then, you know, there have been various other um, meta-analyses and review pieces. Um, it seemed to me like early on, like lots of people were finding effects. And then later on, uh, um, failures to replicate. Uh, and particularly failures to replicate the gender effect. I think part of that is a could be a methodological thing in that it's just much easier to study the gender effect because there are more women on college campuses than there are um, African-American students um, in the U.S. So I think part of, that's part of why um, there's just more studies on gender. Uh, but maybe there is some, al some change also in the stereotypes that are in the air, which is part of um, what is needed for the threat to occur. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was, you know, over time there have been things like physics Barbie and like various kinds of like efforts to try to change and like um, tackle those negative stereotypes about women in STEM. And so it seemed plausible that, yeah, maybe the, um, the threat in the air was much stronger in the early days. And so that's why it was much easier to find those effects then, but maybe that um, has dissipated over time. And so therefore it'd be hard to find the effect now. That seemed plausible to me. Um, and so that's why we're doing the cross-temporal meta-analysis um, so look, like, did the strength of the evidence change over time? And you have um, no nothing? You can't reveal anything? Um, we are in the midst of coding. So, okay. Uh, you, yeah, you know how long that takes. Yeah, totally <laughs> long time, for sure. So, so don't know yet. Um, and then the other one, um, the multi-site, uh, multi-operationalization study uh, is the one we're doing through the Psychological Science Accelerator. Um, and that is to address um, that other concern I just mentioned, which is um, there are just not as many studies um, on uh, stereotype threat among Black students uh, because of the representation issues on U.S. college campuses. Um, and 
when you think about the small sample size issue, like it's really hard to get a large enough sample on any one campus um, to do this kind of study. So um, we decided to really leverage the power of the Psychological Science Accelerator and to do this study across many universities um, in the US. So that's uh, the reason for doing that study. And, you know, there are many different ways of operationalizing stereotype threat. Um, and so, you know, we couldn't say like, well, this way like is the way to test it. Uh, there are many ways you can test it. So we said, well, why not do multiple ways? Um, that could be another built-in like uh, methodological robustness uh, check as well. Um, and so that's why we're um, doing that study in that way. So, I mean, I just want to kind of hit on one point there. So I, I think I was a reviewer of this, of, of that uh, proposal at the Psych Science Accelerator. And I was blown away by, um, it was the first time I'd heard of this technique, this adaptive technique, mm -hmm. whereby you had, I'm, I'm not sure how many interventions, but probably at least 10, maybe 20, maybe even more. Um, and you would, individual labs would, would pick one of these interventions. And then, you know, as the data are collected and analyzed as they're collected, you could determine which of the intervention seems to be more effective and start pouring your resources into that intervention. So it seems like an incredibly robust way of testing an idea. So why pin yourself to any one operationalization of, of anything um, when there are, you know, because we've been trained to operationalize things in different ways, and maybe there really are differences in these operationalizations. So it's just a brilliant way of doing it. And I think regardless of the outcome, I suspect this we'll see more and more of this kind of adaptive technique uh, in the future uh, because it's just so powerful. Yeah, I hope so. And it's a it's a way of um, sort of more efficiently using your resources, right? Um, and so, yeah, the adaptive thing does require... Um, Bayesians on your team. I, the, that's the other piece of this project that has been so, um, like we've all learned a lot um, from each other. It's a large. It takes a large team to pull off a project like this, um, and so this is a think another shift in the field that's kind of required to do this kind of work is that it's not one person or one lab anymore that um, is going to do it all, um, but. Um, we've got people who um, sort of deeply um, embedded in the theory, um, um, deep methodologists um, to figure some of these things out. We've got, it, it just requires a much larger team um, to pull something like this off, but we all learn from each other. Um, and I think ultimately, yeah, regardless of what the results are, we will learn something useful, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for those results. So... I don't know if you're allowed to say, but going in, what was your prior about what you would find? For which one? Uh, for the multi-site replication. Um, yeah, I mean, my prior um, is that we will find um, some effects of a stereotype threat, but that they'll be small. Um, and this is sort of where, I mean, my thinking is on many social psychological findings, um, just the more and more of these large scale, uh, many labs and other like large scale replication studies, the effect sizes are much smaller than the initial studies um, find. Um, and so that's my prior call again, is that uh, we'll find an effect, um, it'll probably be small. Um, and so that 
then gets back to the thing we were talking about in the earlier part of the show, which is um, depending on what that effect size is, what does that mean for practice? Um, that's the next question um, for me. I think I share your prior there. I think if you if the question was with women and math, I might be more skeptical. I might uh, be, well, for, for certain it'll be smaller, but it might be indistinguishable from zero. I think with, you know, uh, African-Americans and, and and the stereotype there, there, yeah, I think there, there might be something there. But it's been tested remarkably seldomly, um, despite it being the first empirical demonstration of the effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, Neil, so, I think what you said is is right on. It's just a tough population to get. Yeah. Right. So people are going to inevitably do things in the easiest possible way. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the, you know, um, back to the broader discussion about like the field and uh, what it is we do. I mean, uh, if you need to churn out papers all the time, you're going to do the thing that's easiest to do. So I'm I'm keeping an eye on the, the clock here. Um, and I know that we've um, already uh, kept you for quite a while. Uh, but I just wanted to give you the opportunity uh, to talk about any uh, new things that you're excited to be working on right now. Like, is there any new research that you're particularly psyched uh, about that you want to share with our audience? Um, I guess, in general, you know, um, it sort of goes back to what I started talking about in the beginning of the show, which is, or what you were asking about, uh, Yoel, about how I bounced around and uh, what that has meant for my career. Like, you know, I'm still doing a lot of my um, quote unquote basic research on psychology of communication, but over time there's like this been growing line of the meta science of interventions and uh, how heterogeneous are intervention effects and what does that mean for like, when and where we can use our interventions. That's um, a big part of uh, the lab these days. And so that's something I'm really excited about um, and just really fascinated by because I think they're both um, deeply theoretical questions that it helps us to answer, as well as, um, of course, practical implications about when and where we should be uh, using behavioral science interventions to try and change the world. Yeah, that's... uh... That's really interesting to me. I'm actually curious. This is a little bit self-indulgent, uh, and we may just cut it out. But I, I'm curious if your take on like I I wrote this commentary sort of recently, um, where I talked about the different approaches between um, economics and psych. And it, you know, econ they they really value intervention work, um, and they go to the field. My feeling is uh, earlier with ideas, and and they do allow things to fail. Right, so they will publish interventions that just didn't do um, what they uh, what they thought they would do. Um, and my feeling is that you know, in psychology, we do do all this laboratory research first, and you know, through some combination of it could be p hacking, it could be selective reporting, but it could just be designing really good experiments that like are particularly. Uh, suited to bringing out an effect, and then we really convince ourselves that this thing must be important. And then if we try the intervention and the results are mixed or negative, then it's really hard to believe it because it's like, look, we have 50 lab studies that show this, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, maybe we'd be better served like trying the intervention earlier, particularly, you know, this really applies for something where it's argued to be like really consequential. So stereotype threat obviously would be one example. Growth mindset would be another example. Um, what do you make of that argument? 
Yeah. So um, you've hit on, um, I'm glad you raised this because it's something that I was thinking about um, sort of before as I thought about like, what might uh, this discussion be? Um, I think one problem in social psychology um, in part because of its, it's really a recent obsession with lab studies that wasn't always this way. Um, you think about like Bob Cialdini's career. Um, the social psychology nowadays often strips away rich contextual information um, from our studies. Um, and I think, I guess that's fine. Like if you're trying to, you know, isolate the mechanisms that fit neatly into the triangle model that you need in JPSB, right? Like that's, I think what has driven um, us to this point of you have to isolate it in the lab. Otherwise, you know, you won't get the significant mediation and then you can't publish it. Can I just uh, say, I love <laughs> the phrase triangle model. I've, I haven't heard that before actually, but I immediately know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, you can't pick up. Kids, look up Baron and Kenny if you don't know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that in the real world, that contextual information that we strip away in our lab studies, that matters a lot. Uh, like the communication channels matter, the histories of the people matter, the politics matter, the economic forces of play matter, the sociology matters. And you have to think about all of those things in concert um, to understand how people might be affected and what you can do. And I think, um, you know, that if we want to like, make that comparison between an economist and psychologist, like the economists, uh, I mean, that is their thing is to spend their time figuring out how to model that. Um, rather than like building, you know, 10 studies, a 10, 10 study package. It's like, no, you will spend your time on one study and you will figure out oh, um, how to model all of these um, things that we consider like problematic uh, noise. Um, and that I think is part of our challenge. Um, we don't really train people to think in this um, complex multidimensional way, which is what you need um, to intervene in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I was told pretty explicitly when I was in grad school, you know, you should be able to analyze with this, this with Nanova. Yeah. If you can't, then, you know, you, you need to redesign it so that you can use Nanova. Yeah. Um, the, you have to fit the world into a two by two. Um, and I, and the world does not fit in the two by two very often. So. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I mean, of course, these lab studies have a place, they right? Do. They they do have a place for basic findings and um, and and proof of concepts, but a lot of what we do is not that. Um, a lot of that is kind of application in disguise. Um, so we must be going out into the real world, and, and our theories need to be kind of make contact with the real world a lot more than they do. Um, so. so um, like, yeah, so Danielle Navarro has this um, paper that I love, Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, um, Tensions Between Scientific Judgment and Statistical Model Selection, I think is the title. Uh, but one of the um, sections of the paper um, is about not mistaking the map for the territory. Um, and I think that's the trouble. Like, yes, two by two lab experiments, uh, they have a place. They help us um, really figure out these proofs of concept and test potential mechanisms. But we have to remember that the mechanism that we find in the lab may not be the same one that is at play uh, once you think about these broader um, interactive forces that are happening in the world. And so don't confuse the two things. Like they have their place, but um, we can't misperceive one for the other. I love that. 
Right. I think that's a great place to leave it. Mickey, is there anything else that you wanted to ask? Uh, no, I, I just want to, you know, thank you so much, Neil, for, for spending a, a couple of hours with us um, and being so generous with your time. And uh, I, I think it was lots of fun. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all for having me. <laughs>